This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. As Canadians, we love our universal health care, but we also love to hate it. Is there an easy fix? Physician and hospital administrator Dr. Danielle Martin has six big ideas. And do you help your adult children and grandchildren financially? And is that hurting your own prospects for retirement? A new study suggests that for most Zoomers, the answer is yes. That's coming up. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's another study showing how great exercise is for us as we age. Research from the University of California, San Diego, shows that women with sedentary lifestyles and low physical activity appear to be eight years biologically older than they actually are. They had shorter telomeres, small protective caps at the ends of DNA that protect genes from breaking down and serve as a biological sign of aging. The study also found that it doesn't take a whole lot to slow the aging process. As little as 30 minutes of exercise a day can help. She's been a golden girl, spent some of her life with Elizabeth, and she's even been hot in Cleveland. Betty White turned 95 this week. She's been a mainstay on television since the 1940s, finding recurring roles on game shows and the iconic Mary Tyler Moore show. She was even a longtime host of the Tournament of Roses Parade. Four years ago, White was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as having the longest-running television career of any female entertainer. Canadian music icon Buffy St. Marie is set to join artists like Sarah McLaughlin and Bruce Coburn when she receives the Alan Waters Humanitarian Award during this year's Junos. He's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. But his orders come from far away no more. The 75-year-old singer and social activist is to be recognized for the positive impact she's had on her community. The Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences says it is rewarding her dedication to protecting Indigenous communities and Indigenous intellectual property. And the famous electronic advertising signboard in London's Piccadilly Circus has gone dark for renovation work and won't be turned back on until this fall. It'll be the longest period of darkness since the Second World War when the city's lights were turned off to confuse German bombers. The new signboard will have one giant digital screen instead of six separate screens. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. She became famous for her passionate defense of our health care system before a U.S. Senate committee. Now, physician and health care administrator Dr. Danielle Martin 
has a prescription for us here at home. Some say the solution is to privatize more of our system. Dr. Martin disagrees, and she's laid out a plan in a new book, Better Now, Six Big Ideas to Improve Healthcare for All Canadians. First of all, can we quickly go through the six big ideas? Yes, of course. I mean, the most important thing about the six big ideas is that they're all based on a fundamental principle, which is that they're about making changes to our healthcare system that will improve people's health without spending a whole lot of money and without giving up on the value of fairness that uh, I think has really underpinned so much of what we're trying to do in our healthcare system. So they range from cultivating relationship-based primary care for every single Canadian, where we can ensure that everybody has access to a family doctor or another primary care provider that they have a relationship with over time, Uh, establishing a national drug program so that everyone who needs life-saving medications in Canada can have access to them, because right now, sadly, we have a situation where many Canadians can't afford their necessary prescription drugs. Right. Reducing unnecessary and wasteful tests and procedures, something that's especially important, frankly, for Canadian seniors who are the victims of overprescribing in large numbers in Canada, and so many Canadians who are subjected to tests and interventions that can really harm their health, not to mention uh, the waste that that represents in the system. The fourth big idea is reorganizing our existing resources to improve care. And there are some parts of the healthcare system in which adding more money is not going to fix the issues that we have. And uh, in fact, in some parts of the system, not all, there's more than enough resource. And so it's not that we need more doctors or more MRI machines or more hospitals or more long-term care facilities, but actually that we need to think differently about how can we organize um, the resources that we've got particularly when it comes to reducing wait time. I'd like to bring in a personal experience here that just completely blew me away. Um, I was treated very successfully, a wonderful treatment for pancreatic cancer at Princess Margaret Hospital. And afterwards, I was on a patient committee when that treatment was reorganized. So when I was there, it was the surgeon, the appointments for the surgeon were separate and for the oncologist were separate. Uh, It was all kind of separate. And I've had a number of experiences where I went to see one, you know, sit in the waiting room for three or four hours. They give me results all good. And then two days later, I'm, I'm right. at the oncologist and it's the same thing. And I'm thinking, why am I here? Um, it was reorganized into a clinic situation where you had all the specialists on one afternoon, all being in the clinic at the same time. A nurse went through referrals every two days instead of once a week. And that in itself, that cut wait times by three weeks quickly. Right, and and that's exactly the kind of example that I'm talking about. Dr. Martin, there are a lot of people around who say that we need to have more privatized parts of the system, and they, they point to European countries that have mixed systems, and their outcomes are, are better than ours. You say that's not right. No, in fact, this is what I call a healthcare zombie. A zombie is a bad idea that refuses to die, that no matter how often... Uh, the evidence comes forward about its uh, lack of applicability in the Canadian context. It still kind of rises from the dead to greet us. And in fact, what we know is um, there are, are virtually no European countries that have the same 
um, context that we do in our in our healthcare system, where physicians are not employed in the public system, doctors are uh, private contractors, independent contractors in the healthcare system, um, and and the reality of privatization is that when we allow some people to pay privately to jump the queue, I think we forget that their doctor jumps the queue with them. And so we have, you end up with a situation where you can significantly, for example, reduce wait times for those people who can afford to pay, but the wait times just get longer for everybody else. And that's what they saw in Australia when Australia did something similar in the past. So I think there's just no way around the fact that we're going to need to make improvements to the public system. And I think we want to make them in ways that reinforce the basic value of fairness that our healthcare system was built on. The book is Better Now, Six Big Ideas to Improve Healthcare for All Canadians. It's available in bookstores. Dr. Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Danielle Martin from Toronto's Women's College Hospital. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break and then return to talk about Zoomers helping their children at their own risk. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. It's being called the deja boom effect. According to a TD Bank survey, 62% of boomers say that helping to support the younger generation is preventing them from saving for their own retirement. And it doesn't look like the phenomenon of millennials returning home is a temporary economic blip. I consulted Zoomer Media's own intergenerational expert, David Kravit, on the shape of things to come for family finances. David Kravit, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So yet another survey that shows that the needs of millennial children and grandchildren are hurting retirement savings of boomer, zoomer parents. It's absolutely true. I think the latest study is uh, 4 in 10 said that they had to slow down or delay or do something with their plans because of the burden of the money being diverted to the still adult kids. Uh Uh-huh, and 62% say they're affected by this. They are, and it's not that surprising because the longer the trend lasts, it isn't just a little blip, you know, two years out of school and that was the recession and now everything's back to normal and so the parents can get on with it. No, this is staying and staying and staying. And um, even when the adult kids are getting jobs, they're not necessarily the greatest jobs, so they still need some support. And, of course, housing is completely out of reach. Well, especially if you live in Toronto or Vancouver, (laughs) there's no way, you know, if you have your own family with two good incomes, that as a couple starting out, there's no way that you're going to have that down payment. No, you can't save in after-tax dollars, uh, six figures probably in Toronto now and maybe in Vancouver now. Uh, It's impossible. Is any of this a surprise? I don't think it's a surprise. I think it's... um, partly inevitable, but there's another side that they didn't report that makes it even more acute, and that is the uh, longevity of the boomers and their perceived amount of time that they need to have money for. If you think, if it's 1958 and you think you're going to be, you know, deceased at 75 and you're 65 and you think, okay, this is, I didn't expect to have juniors still living at home, but... 
I only need 10 years. I can kind of, I don't need to really do much different. But if you think you're now looking, if you're 55, let's say, and you're looking at 30, 40 years of having this problem and, and delaying it by 10 years, and then who's got enough money to last that long? So as you live longer, the stress becomes even more acute. Where am I going to get enough money for all of this? Some people have suggested that if the whole life cycle is just being pushed forward, if, if you're supporting millennial while they get on their feet, even in their late 20s and early 30s, that they've got to expect to be helping you out when you're in your 80s and 90s. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's touched on in the report when they're starting to talk about intergenerational financial planning, like uh, so that if you're, if you're merging the incomes, if you're saying, okay, there's a household income now, the adult kid's living at home, so the mom and dad are kicking in. Okay, what's going to be 10 years from now? What's going to be 20 years from now? And how do those funds get merged? And where do they come from? And it's an interesting idea that that is kind of new. Do you think the kids will go for that? I mean, you know, presumably by the time they get on their feet, they're going to have kids of their own and all of that? Well, I think that it'll vary as usual by family. You know, some will, some won't. But I think that if the mindset starts to change, I know it's starting to change in housing itself. Some people are starting to see that the plan for a, a multi-generational house, instead of it coming as a surprise, oh, the millennial kid is living in the basement, oh, granny moved in, that's not what we thought. Well, if you start thinking maybe this will happen and you start looking at the house as a vehicle for accommodating changing needs over generations, then the financial planning is part of that. So you say, look, let's look at the money. Let's look at the building. Let's look at the, you know, the, the pool, all the resources for housing and money. It just becomes a different way of looking at it. And I think it'll be like everything else. It'll be shocking now and then it'll become acceptable and then it'll become the norm. What do you think of uh, the TD Bank's uh, nomenclature? They, they're calling this the deja boom. How would you define that? Well, I think it's... <laughs> It's a, it's a catchy phrase. I think it can be taken a number of different ways. Does it mean that the ultra-take-charge, ultra-capable, I-can-handle-anything boomers just sort of suck it up, complaining as they do, but they kind of do it? Does it put them at the center again, that the millennials are just a sort of passenger as on the way through? Uh, there's a lot of ways uh, to take that, some of them— uh, less flattering than others, I guess. How do you think this will transform society? Will it bring families closer together? Of necessity, uh, it will. And I, I do think the faster it becomes, um, I, I want to use the word accepted, but it might not be the right word, but it, the faster it becomes more commonplace, where this is just the way it is. We're all going to live longer, so every, all these benchmarks are going to be hit later in life. Let's just relax about it, then I think there will be that closeness and there will because you've got a plan for it and everybody wants a quality of life and everybody wants to cooperate and the boomers are going to need that help on the other end of the timeline. Okay, so maybe it's not so bad. And I think in the end, we will make it not so bad. But in the meantime, there might be a bit of pain. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of surprise because it's never happened before in quite this way. Okay, David Kravitz, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz on a new study that suggests boomers are risking their own retirement by helping their children and grandchildren. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When we return, we'll remember one of the Everly brothers who would have been 78 years old this week. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. To the sounds of Beethoven. Hamburg, Germany has premiered a spectacular new concert hall that's been touted as a rival to the world-famous Sydney Opera House. The Elfie, as it's known, features a bold design and world-class acoustics and costs nearly $830 million to build. If you're in New York and in the mood for something different, check out Made in China. It's an all-puppet musical that blends an unlikely romance between two lonely souls with commentary on the ties between America's consumerism and China's human rights record. It's playing the 59E59 theaters until the end of February. In Chicago, comedian and game show host Wayne Brady is starring in Hamilton. So what did I miss? What did I miss? Hamilton is on stage at the Private Bank Theater through April 9th. And a museum devoted to spreading the word about marijuana has opened in the capital of pot-friendly Uruguay. The South American country allows consumers to legally buy up to 40 grams a month. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. This week, Phil Everly would have celebrated his 78th birthday. The Everly brothers, Phil and Don, caught the attention of Chet Atkins in the mid-1950s while playing in Knoxville, Tennessee, and signed on to Columbia Records. But after a few attempts at writing a hit song, Columbia Records dropped the Everlys in 1956. But Atkins believed in the duo and got them signed on Cadence Records. In 1957, Phil and Don recorded a song that had been passed over by more than 30 artists. Bye Bye Love was the first bonafide hit for the Everly Brothers, going to number two on Billboard and hitting the top spot on the country charts. They continued pumping out hits for the next two years, including Wake Up Little Susie, All I Have to Do is Dream, and Bird Dog. After that, Phil and Don never quite reached the same heights as they did in 1957 and 58. Phil recorded solo albums in later years that did not repeat his earlier success. He died just days before his 75th birthday in 2014 of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Right now, let's hear one of Phil and Don's greatest hits, All I Have to Do is Dream. Dream. That's Phil and Don Everly with their hit song, All I Have to Do is Dream. Phil would have turned 78 this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Please come back next week as we check out the latest automotive innovations. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.